Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I think that the potion just is an excuse for destiny to happen. They're supposed to be together. From WQXR and the Metropolitan Opera, this is Aria Code. I'm Rhiannon Gibbons. Maybe that's sort of the ultimate irony of this monologue that we keep calling the Liebestod. It's not about death, it's about life. Every episode, we dig deep into a single aria to see what lies within. Today, it's the Liebestod from Tristan und Isolde by Richard Wagner. Having a relationship is about choosing to invest in someone because they're kind, because they are really worth spending time with. (laughs) And I think our love stories so rarely capture that. Have you ever fallen in love? I mean, really fallen in love. Like the ground suddenly opens up under you and you're plummeting to the center of the earth. That kind of love? I know I have. And it's both thrilling and absolutely terrifying. But isn't it funny the way we talk about love as something we fall into? Something that happens to us without us really having any say in the matter? That understanding of love comes through in so many of the stories that we tell over and over again in movies, TV, books, plays, and definitely in operas. Exhibit A, Richard Wagner's Tristan und Isolde. It's based on an ancient legend about the Irish princess Isolde and the Breton Cornish knight Tristan. For political reasons, she's betrothed to his uncle Mark, King of Cornwall. But as Tristan is bringing her across the Irish Sea for the wedding, they both drink a love potion and kapow! They find themselves desperately, passionately in love. And because this is opera, it's doomed from the start. They're discovered by King Mark's men and Tristan is fatally stabbed. Today's aria, the Liebestod, which literally means love death, people, is the final few minutes of the opera. Isolde is singing over Tristan's lifeless body, and it's a gorgeous, swelling expression of her love for him. But it's also what Wagner called a transfiguration, because by the end, Isolde has sung herself into the only realm where she and Tristan can be together. Okay, so we've got a love potion, agonizing desire, and a passion so forbidden that it can only exist in the afterlife. It's a lot to unpack, but I've got three great guests to help us do it. First, soprano Jane Eaglin. Isolde was one of her signature roles. If you had said to me, while you're singing your verse, Isolde, you will meet your husband, I would have laughed and said, there's just not any chance of that happening because I'm going to be way too busy singing Isolde. But in fact, I did meet my husband at Seattle Opera. And so Isolde is a very special role for me for so many reasons. Next, Alex Ross, music critic for The New Yorker and author of the book, Wagnerism. Wagner's the most fascinating composer to kind of wrestle with. His anti-Semitism, his notorious sense of having somehow prophesied Nazi Germany, but also the Soviet Union and Gilded Age America. He hasn't faded away into the woodwork. He hasn't become a dusty marble bust. He's still kind of out here causing problems. 
And finally, Mandy Lynn Catron, who spent most of the last decade researching and writing about romantic love. I got really interested in love because it occurred to me one day that I was really bad at it. <laughs> and so I started thinking about how the rom-coms of like the 90s that I grew up with had shaped the way I thought about love and maybe for the worse. And so I was really interested in finding other ways, maybe better and more useful ways to think about this basic human experience. Mandy wrote an essay for the New York Times Modern Love column that went viral back in 2015 called, To Fall in Love with Anyone, Do This. It's about her experience with taking a kind of contemporary love potion, a list of questions that scientists had discovered could help two people develop intimacy. Now, get ready to fall in love with the Liebestod from Richard Wagner's Tristan und Isolde. Tristan is an old, old legend whose exact origin is not known. It's a passionate, really engaged love story, which goes wrong. You see stories like it, the illicit love affair, the doomed love affair, all around the world. So there's something very elemental about it. And Wagner added his own preoccupations and his own obsessions to the given material. And this is what he always did with legends and myths. I think the reason we're drawn to love stories is because there is this theory that basically when we are reading a book or watching a movie, there are these mirror neurons in our brains that are essentially replicating the experience to a degree. So my brain is a little bit reacting as though that is happening to me. And it, it feels really good. It has this sort of similar intoxicating quality. This music was perceived as intoxicating, narcotizing, having the power to create this kind of bliss and rush and that this was perceived to be dangerous, almost like dangerous substances that sort of needed to be regulated. I think it's the very highest extremes of those things. It's really a love story. So I was interested in figuring out if I could map the prototypical love story and pretty much every love story that you can find, there are these four components. The first is the meeting. So the two people who are gonna fall in love meet. And in almost every case, there is this sense that there is some larger force, whether that's just charisma or whether it's something as big and potent as fate or the intervening of a deity drawing the two people together. So the action of Tristan is actually quite simple, but there is a complicated backstory. 
Tristan is the nephew of King Mark of Cornwall. His parents have died, and, and he's been sort of adopted as King Mark's son. And there's been a political negotiation between Cornwall and Ireland, and Isolde is being given to King Mark as a bride. But there's a severe complication in the fact that on a previous expedition, Tristan had killed Isolde's fiancé, Marold. And so at the very beginning of the opera, she is absolutely seething with rage. Isolde feels humiliated being carted off to be married to this foreign king and the fact that she's being conveyed by this awful Tristan. But there's something else at work here. There's the fact that Isolde had cured the wounded Tristan, and there was already some spark of something between them. There's a wonderful line when Isolde says, he didn't look at the sword, he didn't look at my hand, he looked into my eyes. And that was the moment that everything changed for them. That was when they basically fell in love. And so then I think when she's now on the ship and he's taking her to be married to King Mark, she feels so completely and utterly betrayed by him because he's kind of pretending that didn't happen, I think. And he's just doing his job, really. She decides that she's going to kill Tristan and uh, she's going to die herself in the process. And so a potion, a death potion, is prepared by her attendant, Brangaena. But Brangaena is extremely fond of Isolde and doesn't want her to perish in this fashion. And so she switches the potions and they drink what turns out to be a love potion and they fall in love. The second stage or the second element is awareness of love. So it's this moment that we see in every love story where either one or both of the lovers suddenly realizes that they have these strong feelings and that they need to do something about them. It's very interesting as to whether the potion really is something that has worked or not. And sometimes I've absolutely been directed that this is nothing. This is just water. And it's the the connection between you that you feel you're allowed to have at this point because you've had a potion that maybe did something, but it didn't. There's also been times when I've been directed to, yes, this really is a love potion and this is what makes it happen. And I think that... The potion just is an excuse for destiny to happen. Really, it just allows them to do what is supposed to happen for them. They're supposed to be together. Then the third element is potential obstacles. So there's always something in the way, and that can be something simple like one person is in a relationship and the other person is pining after them. So there's something that they have to overcome in order to be together. And so they're now desperately in love and they are on the verge of this catastrophic situation where Isolde is supposed to be married to King Mark. 
All the marriages at that point were, were very much organized and you had no choice. She is being sent on the ship and that's kind of the end of it. And then the obvious fourth step is union. So something brings these two people together. If it's a comedy, there's a wedding. If it's a tragedy, it's followed by a breakup or death. My own love story was essentially, there was this guy that I knew, this guy Mark, and over a couple of years, it occurred to me that I had like a little bit of a crush on him. I didn't take it very seriously because I had a lot of crushes at the time. I was just out of this long-term relationship for 10 years. But I always thought like, you know, if he's ever single, I would be interested in spending more time with him. And it happened that he <laughs> posted a photo on Instagram of one of our mutual friends. So... I think I sent him a message and then he asked if I wanted to go for a beer. So we went to this bar and started drinking. <laughs> and he said to me, I have this theory that you could fall in love with anyone if you kind of put your mind to it. <laughs> and it reminded me of this study I had read by this psychologist Arthur Aaron. And essentially, the psychologist had heterosexual man and woman spend 90 minutes answering these 36 increasingly personal questions. And then at the end, they would make eye contact for four minutes without speaking. And essentially, what they found is that answering these questions in order creates intimacy between two people really quickly. So Mark and I were sitting there, we were drinking, it was late and I'm feeling brave and I'm like, you know, I've always wanted to try this. And he was like, let's do it. And so we did. We sat in this bar taking turns asking the other person the questions. And the way it works is they start out just like general kind of icebreaker questions, but they increasingly become more and more personal. And to me, that felt so vulnerable. In Act Two, King Mark has gone off on a hunt, and so Tristan and Isolde have their night of love, this endless, wildly passionate, and also at times extraordinarily becalmed and, and sort of almost hypnotic form of ecstasy. So the love duet in Act Two starts off with a lot of them just talking to each other. It's very sort of conversational, but as the, the duet goes on, they then start to sing together. So it's very much about their passion. It is when they start to become closer, physically, emotionally, they start to understand each other better. And so we did these questions. And I was like, you know, that wasn't bad. Like, I'm sure the staring in the eyes part is way more weird. And he was like, don't you think we should do that too? What if we walk out to the bridge? So we walk to the apex of the bridge and 
I set a timer on my phone for four minutes and we stared into each other's eyes without speaking. Truly like one of the more uncomfortable experiences of my life. You know, I was really nervous and like giggly and awkward for the first couple of minutes, but then we just kind of settled into the experience and it was really intense. And, you know, I think there are these physiological things that happen when you make eye contact, like sweaty palms, your heart rate goes up. Then the alarm went off and I was like, oh, it's done. And so I walked him to his place. We stood in his backyard and we kissed and then I left. And I thought, who knows? (laughs) This could go either way. Like this could be the start of a romantic relationship or it could be the start of a really good friendship. And the end of the act two duet, there's no resolution because then Brigada shouts and Mark's coming. And so they are discovered. And there's a fight and Tristan is mortally wounded. And then a great deal of the third act is simply Tristan back in Brittany, suffering from his mortal wound, sort of going through spells of madness, but hoping that Isolde will appear. And indeed, Isolde is on her way with a potion that could cure him. Isolde does arrive, but it's too late. All they can say is Isolde before he dies. And then, well, hell breaks loose. King Mark comes on and everyone's killed and it's all kind of crazy. But I think that for Isolde, she's not aware of any of that. She's completely in her own world by this stage. She has just passed into another realm and she no longer has any awareness of, of what's happening around her. Then Isolde sings the Liebestote. And so everyone calls this passage at the end of the opera the Liebestode, which means love, death. And it's actually a total misnomer. The ending of the opera he called Isolde's Verklärung, Isolde's Transfiguration, which is something quite different, I think, from love, death. But I think it kind of creates an image of this whole opera being about somehow this almost morbid sort of suicidal form of love that kind of actively desires its own destruction and extinction. I spent a lot of time researching metaphors and looking at how we talk about romantic love. Part of what I noticed is that a lot of the metaphors are to do with illness or aggression. You know, we would say like, lovesick or crazy in love or being crushed or being smitten. Smitten is like the past participle of the word smite, which is like this biblical term for the actions of an angry, vengeful God. And so I think it's so interesting that when we talk about having these intense feelings and what is 
presumably like a very meaningful and positive experience in our lives that we actually position ourselves as victims of intense suffering. As the aria begins, Isolde is standing in this world of death. This is the grim fallout of this great romantic love story. But Isolde is completely indifferent to that, and she is seeing Tristan alive. And so this music that breaks in, this steady, stately, melodic line, mild und leise, Gently and softly as he smiles. I would always try to start it with a kind of smile because she says he's smiling and everything is going to be fine. And she starts off looking into the distance and then very soon makes it very immediate. You know, don't you see, friends? Can't you see what's happening? It is a total break from everything else that we've been experiencing in in the moments leading up. This opera has been very turbulent, very wild, very dissonant, you know, sort of these constant kind of collisions of different emotional states. You know, here all that recedes, and so you pass over into Isolde land, you know, into this completely different sphere where the outer world is fading away and we're we're hearing this music that is just sort of deeply, deeply calm. Zeti is nicht. Don't you see this? She asks them again. Can't you see what's happening? She knows there's people around, and she's just trying to express how she feels. She keeps saying, do you see friends? And so who are these friends? It's probably not the kind of now quite small group of people who are still alive <laughs> at the end of this opera. It's almost as if she's delivering an address to a crowd. Is she talking to us? Is she talking to the audience? I think this aria is very much on a sensual level. So many of the things that he does give you a physical response, I think. And I think my job is to let the audience feel those things. I have to interpret that in a certain way. But I I do think it's, it's very emotional, it's very physical, but it's also very uplifting in a way. If you look at the text, it's intensely synesthetic. She's just singing about his voice, his face, his appearance, and she's sort of trying to use all of her senses and all of her memories to create this cinematic image of her beloved Tristan to capture his presence and bring it to life. One of the things I came across in my research was this idea that for love to feel meaningful as a part of our lives, we have to know that it's finite. So essentially, if we were immortal, if we lived forever, romantic love wouldn't be meaningful to us the way it is when we understand ourselves to be these mortal creatures. We have to know that it has an ending. So I think... I think there's this way in which love and death actually are inextricably linked. And then when it gets to 
not quite the big climax, but the first of many. The voice part is actually not the most important part of the music at this point. I think the orchestra kind of takes the lead and it's very much interwoven. It's like you are totally just an instrument of the orchestra. And then she says, resounding yet more clearly, wafting about me, are they waves of refreshing breezes? So everything is kind of bleeding together, kind of melding and, and merging. She does indeed speak about the waves and the water and so on, because in Act One, they're on the water. And that's very descriptive in his way of writing the orchestra. So you have a, a louder bit and then suddenly it goes away a bit and then starts building up again and building up. I think it's sexual in many ways. Well, right from the very first bars of the opera, Tristan has been about tension without release, so that a phrase is extended and stops, and then it doesn't resolve. And whenever you seem to be arriving at a moment of stability, something else slips in under the harmony and tilts it in a different direction. So this has been going on for, for hours and hours and hours. And the Liebestod, it, it does kind of bring that dynamic to its highest pitch in the sense that it is just all one unbroken phrase. And there are these moments where it's sort of building and building and this wonderful moment where the whole string section has the tremolos, that sound just sort of automatically gets under your skin and sort of gives you the sense of something is about to happen and sort of something is about to be revealed, the orchestra literally trembling with excitement. In the Liebestod, the accompaniment starts with eighth notes, and then it goes to triplets, and then it goes to sixteenth notes. So it sounds like it gets faster as the heartbeat is getting faster, but it actually doesn't. The pulse stays the same, but you get this feeling of this building up and building up because of the way he wrote it. Stamina is obviously a, a key thing if you're going to sing for five hours. And I've always had that, I think. My mother tells me that I could cry for hours and would not stop until I got my own way. So I guess even as a baby, I was building up my lungs. When we have these intense romantic feelings, that feeling provides a kind of momentum. But I also think that we have a lot more say than we think we do. We think of a soulmate as someone who is like predestined for us, someone that the universe has designed for us to be with. And maybe a better way to think about it is someone with whom we've sort of mutually chosen to create a life together. You don't really get a chance to kind of regroup while you're singing this aria. There's really nowhere where you get even a bar off. And so you have to really sort of husband your resources a little bit. But the way it's written with all these waves actually helps because then you can kind of go back to a more mezzo piano place. And then you just keep building up and building up. And then there's this whole sense of the orchestra swelling and shimmering. 
and then this sort of quick rush up to this big forte chord. And that's this, this Welt Atoms Wehend and all kind of the biggest climax in, in all opera that I know. In the surging swell, in the ringing sound, in the world breath's wafting vastness. <laughs> That's a typical sort of Wagnerian mouthful. To drown, to sink, unconscious, highest bliss. Huxta lust, the highest level of emotion in a sense. But musically, Isolde has finally come to rest, and the music has finally come to rest on a single fixed harmony. It feels as though she's reached the axis, the center of everything, and she's sort of standing absolutely still now. And usually, honestly, just hearing those final bars of the orchestra, that would have much more emotional effect on me than actually the bits I sing, because I can enjoy it at that point, as opposed to having to think, oh, I've got another bit to sing in a minute, I better keep myself together. Even right at the very end, there's one last little quiver of sadness or loss or that deep melancholy that has been in the opera from the very beginning. But that passes, and, and we do finally arrive at the terminal bliss of B major in, in the very last three bars. It's a positive way to end what is a tragic story. But what is actually going on at the end of the opera? Isolde is not talking about death at all. She never says the word death. It's this, this hallucination of Tristan being still alive. What he says in the, in the score is that she sinks into Brangaena's arms. So something happens to her physically. But I don't think that she dies. I think it is more of a transfiguration. I mean, maybe that's sort of the ultimate irony of this monologue that we keep calling the Liebestote. It's not about death, it's about life. It's about the memory of a person whom Isolde is bringing to life in her own mind. I mean, after all this kind of metaphysical and philosophical and, and kind of musicological endless debate and discussion of this music, it is very, very simple. It is this sort of absolutely pure and kind of all-powerful form of, of love. You're probably wondering if he and I fell in love. Basically what happened is that we became friends for a while. And what I think really is true is that we decided to fall in love. Like, we both made the choice. And that was um, seven years ago. And we just had twin boys that we brought home from the hospital. <laughs> Writer Mandy Lynn Katrin, soprano Jane Eaglin, and New Yorker music critic Alex Ross. 
Decoding the Levis Toad from Wagner's Tristan und Isolde. Get ready, because you're about to hear Jane sing the whole shebang. I'm Helga Davis, and my show is all about the art of fearless conversation. The wonder of dialogue is that what you think is so obvious gets really questioned at a deep level. Sometimes the truth is having those uncomfortable discussions that get to facts that we usually don't want to talk about. Join me for a new season of Helga, wherever you get podcasts. Tristan has died, and now, after four hours of intense longing and desire, Isolde is going to sing herself into a place where these two lovers can finally be together forever. Here's soprano Jane Eaglin singing the Liebestod from Tristan und Isolde by Richard Wagner on stage at the Metropolitan Opera.
Well now, people, that is what transfiguration sounds like. Soprano Jane Eaglin just brought us to another realm with her performance of the Liebestod from Wagner's Tristan und Isolde. Next time, an aria based on one of the most famous speeches in the history of famous speeches, To Be or Not To Be, set to music in composer Brett Dean's contemporary adaptation of Hamlet. Aria Code is a co-production of WQXR and the Metropolitan Opera. The show is produced and scored by Marin Lazian. Max Fine is our assistant producer, Helena de Groot is our editor, and Matt Abramovitz is our executive producer. Mixing and sound design by Matt Boynton and Anya Jeshik of Ultraviolet Audio, and original music by Hannes Brown. This project is supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, on the web at arts.gov. I'm Rhiannon Giddens. See you next time. <laughs>